Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. It was written a long time ago, but it was written for you today. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and is And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. Herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame has burned down all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you. Because the water brooks are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would yet again give life and light to your word. That we might have understanding and faith. And we would be transformed. We thank you that your scriptures speak to all of life. Please help us to understand and believe. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. We are currently staring down the barrel of the largest change in education in at least 200 years, probably longer, I don't know. I'm not that well versed in it, but uh, in how education is done. With as many teachers in the room, this is a big deal. School is changing. One major force, the internet. Positively, negatively, I'm sure there's multitudes of things written on both sides. But uh, the rise of the internet is kind of, in essence, taking away boundaries and barriers to learning. Whereas two, three, four, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, you had to be in the same location to learn from someone. (coughs) Not, Not anymore. You'd be halfway around the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can constantly learn as long as you have access to the internet. And it's forcing teachers and schools to kind of reevaluate what they're doing. It's forcing them to ask a series of questions. What can be discarded and what has to be kept? What, what is just kind of the way we've always done things? What's tradition? And what if it actually has a purpose? What are the parts that are just method? And what are the parts that have a madness to the method, method to the madness? How much, really, at the end of the day, 
Is the method actually part of the medium? That's an important question for me. I've taken online courses at high school level, not college, weirdly enough, two separate masters, and now doctoral level. And it's an important question to ask of, okay, how much is the way that it's done important to the product that you learn? How much is the method part of the content? This passage is going to deal with a similar type of question, not so much with education, but with something a bit bigger and more important. You see, Joel is confronting a national crisis. Locusts have come in, and not just like a couple, like the grasshoppers we have here. It's always fun in the fall. I remember being a kid over in Matthews and having to do my bug project for school and going out with my father and catching all of the bugs that you could possibly catch and hoping that none of them were the really terrible kind that could mess you up. But it was always tons and tons of fun. These locusts are not that type of creature. These are the type of certain conditions where the temperature and the humidity and all of the food and life cycle have perfectly aligned to make for misery where the grasshoppers have bread and bread and bread and bread. I told you last week one of the uh, resources I had read said that in a square meter you could have upwards of 65 or 70,000 locusts being, you know, hatched out of the ground. These things are millions and millions of creatures, and they've caught them thousands of miles out at sea, even flying out to look for food. They're devastating. They eat absolutely everything. And the book begins with Joel kind of describing the struggle. Verse 4, he kind of gives us a, a good, clear understanding of how it works. What the cutting locust left. Swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust is eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Good illustration would be if you were maybe the youngest in a large family. What the first brother left, the second brother has eaten. What the second brother has left, the third brother has eaten. What the third brother left, the fourth brother has eaten, and you as the fifth brother have nothing. There's nothing left. They ate it all. It's all gone. They probably ate the plates and the silverware too. There's nothing for you to consume. You can't even chew on the table. It's gone as well. The locusts have consumed it all. It's actually not a cheerful book quite sad, it's quite depressing. It's, I mean, do we really like to talk about things like this? I mean, this is just, it's brutal. It's all tears. He's walked through here with the drunkards weeping because the wine is gone. There's no grapes left to ferment anything for them to drink. He's walked through the farmers weeping because there's no way for their families to have food. Their land is dried up. And spent. But here at the end of chapter 1, he begins to turn the corner. Chapter 2 is where he really sets the hook, but this is where he begins to turn the corner in how we think about tragedies like this. How we think about tsunamis on Boxing Day, 
How we think about buildings being knocked down in September. How we think about, a uh, fun one, perfect you know, sermon illustration, Hawaii yesterday. If you've read the news at all yesterday, Hawaii had a bit of a mess up. They're saying somebody actually pushed the wrong button, but I really don't believe that. For half an hour yesterday, Hawaii, somebody mashed the button that notified them that North Korea had launched a nuke at them. So for half an hour, the whole entire island system thought, this is the end. I don't really want to know what happened in that half an hour. I'm sure it was not wholesome or good, but they all thought that that was the end of life. And then all of the signs switched, and you know the big flashing ones over the road said, sorry, our mistake. It was an error. You're fine. No missiles coming. Somebody got fired. Verse 13, he begins to turn the corner, and how do we think about these kind of tragedies? How do we think about suffering? How do we think about difficulty? And most of us would go, well, okay, what does this mean for me? I mean, you remember the moment where you heard the bad news. I remember the moment I heard about the challenger. I remember the phone call from my mother in September saying, son, you need to go downstairs and turn on the television. There are a lot of people having a really bad day. It hit just in time to see the building. We process it so much kind of through the, the me matrix, through that lens of who I am and what I do in my life and all about me. My gracious, we're so good at that. But as Joel begins to take the nation through the locust and how to think about a famine and how to think about poverty and how to think about all of the problems that are going to happen, he turns to a place that you might not expect. I mean, remembering the locust here, they've, they've eaten all of the food, so there's nothing left to eat. They've eaten all the crops, so there's now no income. They, this is like the stock market just bottoming out. It's everybody lost everything. In verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O people of God, and worry about your families and worry about your tables and worry. No, that's not where he goes, is it? Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. That's that mourning attire, the the garb of someone in sadness. Ministers of my God, why? Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Whoa. How do we process the national disaster? How do we process the locust? How do we think about, well, interestingly, where does Joel take the nation in their thoughts? It's not to their homes. It's not to their children or their grandchildren. It's not to the stock market. It's not to any sort of political thing. People of God, it's time to think about the worship of God. Consider the consequences of this disaster for the church. 
Weep and wail. Not because you don't have food on the table. We don't even have enough resources to have worship anymore. We can't have drink offerings because all of the wine is gone. We can't have grain offerings because all of the grain is gone. We can't worship God properly anymore. Who knows how long before all of the sheep are dead? We can't worship the Lord. Now, interestingly, it's a corporate consideration. This is, I, I find to be incredibly intriguing as a bit of a rebuke maybe against American individualism. Every time we hit national disaster, we process it so individually. And it's interesting that as he begins to turn to help Israel think about the struggles, to think about the trials, to think about the locust, it's corporate in its focus. Consider the consequences of the disaster for the church. Church, together, think about what this means for the church. You can't do worship the same way. In fact, actually, don't just think about it. Let's do something. Ministers, priests, call a consecrated fast. Interestingly, who fasts when they consecrate a fast? Is it just the ministers? No. It's the people. What would happen is the priests would get together and they would call for a a holy season and say, we're going to fast for four days corporately. And then it's your job to fast. To prepare yourself to worship the Lord through this spiritual discipline, to gather together in a solemn assembly, and to cry out to the Lord together. It's a corporate consideration and a corporate response. It's a a response that reshapes the worship of the church. It reshapes what their normal practice would be, their normal habit. It reshapes how the church operates. I had a really interesting kind of thought process in relationship to this this week. For those of you that have been following the Panthers debacle, it's great entertainment uh, with Mr. Richardson having to sell the team and now the team going up for sale and multiple different entities buying it. And uh, one that is very popular, but very unlikely and one that is not very popular, but is extremely likely. The one that's likely to buy the Panthers is being bid on by the CEO of NASCAR. And he has a mouthpiece in the Charlotte community who's very famous and very influential, a guy named Felix Sabatis. And Felix Sabatis said that if we're going to keep the Panthers in Charlotte, we need a new stadium. And it needs to have a dome so it can be used year-round, and it needs to have parking so that we can make more money and the stadium can pay for itself. And if we're going to do that, we've got to have a new place for it. And one of the news stations leaked the number one place for that stadium to go in. Now, it's not likely to happen, but oh man, it's hot tamales because it's three miles that way. You realize we're talking about building Panther Stadium just on the other side of 77. You realize what that would do for the church? You realize how that changes just this body here? You realize we have people trying to park in our parking lot Sunday mornings to go to games? You realize our land value skyrockets. How population density increases, how restaurants are built everywhere. Think about what it means for the church. A corporate consideration. Now, interestingly, that could be catastrophic. It could be good. I, I don't know the answer to it. But See the thought process. 
to process a physical action through the lens of a corporate entity, the, the people of God through the church. Who cares about the Panthers? I care about the people of God. And you realize if they built that, it's not going to go there. It's not going to happen. But if it did, oh man, that would change dramatically how this place operates. What Joel is calling the people of God to do is that same kind of thought process. Look, when it's time to think about the locusts, don't think about you. Think about the people of God. Think about the church. Think about what God is doing. He then turns to a, a, a different tact, a different focus, which is one that uh, it really is actually quite interesting. It's a bit surprising, in my opinion. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Verse 16, he changes gears and he said, look, is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. Okay, so we don't have happiness because food is gone. Fair enough. 17, the seed shrivels under the clods, so it's dying, nothing's growing. The storehouses are desolate. Well, yeah, they ate everything. There's nothing, no replenishment going into the, to the uh, silos and such. The granaries are torn down. We don't, we don't maintain granaries anymore because there's no grain to be stored. Close out a savings account if you don't have any money to go in there and you're just paying monthly fees. But then look what happens in verse 18. Look, even the beasts groan. The cattle are perplexed. There's no pasture for them. They want to go eat. The cows want to eat, but there's nothing for them to eat. They're confused. These dumb creatures don't know what to do. And so we call to the Lord in verse 19, on behalf of creation. The fires devour the pastures of the wilderness, flames burn the trees of the field, and the beasts pant because now they want water, but there's not even any water because all of the greenery's gone, and as the greenery's gone, it doesn't maintain the water in the land, and now we're turning the land into desert. And what you have described here, Joel is kind of riffing on an idea of creation and saying, look, as we look at the land, what we're seeing is a land that's being unmade. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us of of a land that is made and is made very good. Joel 1 is telling us of a land that is being unmade, and it's not good. And cry out to the Lord on behalf of creation. Paul takes up similar language in Romans 8.22 as he's talking about the struggles with sin. And he says, for we know that the whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's that same idea. Look, creation itself is miserable with this situation. Oh, Lord, won't you please help? Creation itself is miserable. And he's highlighting here a a second kind of key feature in this consideration. First is processing the disaster through the lens of the people of God, but then processing the lens through creation itself because God cares about creation. I think sometimes we kind of forget about that, don't we? That God actually likes creation. I mean, he made it. And after he made it, he said it was good. 
It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible at the end of Jonah. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite verses. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4, and the Lord said to Jonah, Jonah's having a pity party, a little temper tantrum. The Lord said to him, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And God says, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. It's one of my favorite verses. Because here, Jonah's having a pity party because God didn't destroy the Ninevites. He instead saved them. And God says, look, I'm gracious. Why would I not be gracious to Nineveh? There's more than 120,000 people there that are confused. They don't know what left and right. They They don't know what's right and wrong in a spiritual sense where they're informed by the word of God. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's also cows, and I like cows. I love that you have God saying, oh, yeah, by the way, I like cows. They're important to me. That's a fun to think about, isn't it? That God likes cows. I mean, should he made them? Made them, they're really fun creatures in some ways, I guess. You consider the, the consequences of the disaster through the lens of the church and, interestingly, through the lens of creation. And both of these lenses give you the opportunity to appeal to God on their behalf. Lord, please, write this situation. Think about what's happening to the church. The people of God, please help. God, think about what's happening to your creation. Think about your cows. Your cows are dying. And you like cows. Please, Fix the situation because of the cows. Both of these provide interesting lenses through which to view any sort of suffering and difficulty, and that's because of the primary point of the sermon, which I've danced around but haven't explained yet. It's actually illustrated the best in verse 15. Joel has described the locusts in verse 4, and then verses 5 through 12, he's been walking the nation through kind of mourning with various people groups. In 13 and 14, he starts highlighting the consequences for the church. In verses 17 through 20, he highlights the consequences for creation. But verse 16, he ultimately tips his hand. What's the agenda? What's the, what's the purpose? Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. At his destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Wait, wait, wait a minute. No, most of us are not, um, I mean, we're classic American evangelicals, I assume. We read the New Testament probably five times for every once that we read the Old Every time we read the Bible, we tend to jump into the new or in the Psalms and not to the old. And so a phrase like the day of the Lord does not set off all of the bells and whistles in our brains. But for a Jew reading this, when you hear that phrase day of the Lord, it would be like, you know, the old gong show, you know, with the giant gong and they hit it with a giant mallet. And it's like, and everything kind of resonates. That's what would happen when they hear day of the Lord. It would set off their skull thinking, oh man, this is a loaded term. 
I'm not going to define it as much because it's going to show up next week and I don't want to preach the same sermon twice, though I sometimes do that. But what's happening here is the day of the Lord is primarily a spiritual thing. I mean, it takes place inside time and space and it's a physical day, but it is primarily occupied with spiritual entity, with spiritual focus, that's what I mean. And so you see that the key point that's actually happening here is that God is using physical activities for spiritual purposes. You have a physical thing, locusts, showing up to accomplish a spiritual purpose. Think about the worship. Think about the cows. You see, both of the, he's trying to call the people of God to think about spiritual things, to have a spiritual response, to have a relationship with the Lord, to have faith, to have repentance, to have obedience, to have all of this spiritual response to a physical thing. And what this does in many ways is to provide a focus for our suffering. So that you know every time you hit difficulty from here on out for the rest of your life, you know God is doing a spiritual work with your physical difficulty. An illustration of this is when you go to seminary, and certainly RTS, most seminaries, I would say conservative ones at least, they still make you learn languages, the biblical languages. You'll have to learn Greek and Hebrew. And they're hard. For those, you know, we're Americans, we don't do multiple languages, most of us don't at least. And the idea of learning a foreign language is a bit brain-breaking, and it's tedious, and it's taxing, and it's hard. And there are a lot of guys that get into seminary, and they're like, why am I doing this? I'm never going to use this. <coughs> Boy, that just made me cough. <coughs> you know, why am I doing this? I'm never going to use this. I'm going to get out and I'm going to preach in English. I'm going to read in English. Why do I need to know Greek and Hebrew? Ah, and they get grumpy. And coffee when they do that. <coughs> I remember um, my New Testament teacher And he says, you you actually miss the point if you think about it that way. Because a large part of what it is to learn a second language is actually to learn to read language. It's to learn an eye for detail. It's learn how to read a text. It's to learn to teach you how to handle a manuscript with a mind that sees the little pieces. So even if you learn the Greek and forget it, you still walk away with a value. You learn how to think differently. The misery of learning Greek every day, which Robert just finished, is killing him, right? It's hard. It's difficult. It reshapes how your brain even thinks about language itself. Your end goal isn't to use Greek. It's to think rightly. It's to shape the insides. It's to gain the intangible benefit. Likewise, when the Lord places us in situations of suffering, which, by the way, you will have to face. Again, the running joke, it's death, taxes, and suffering. You'll have to face it, guaranteed. 
The thing to remember is that it's not just about the suffering, but it's about what God is doing through the suffering. Yeah, as I'm kind of pondering that. I think, well, okay, well, so what do we kind of need to make suffering better? I mean, what makes it kind of more enjoyable? How is it that, you know, what's the difference between suffering where I'm just absolutely, abjectly miserable and suffering where it's like, I hate this, but I can deal with it. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, really kind of three things that make suffering more manageable to me. A purpose, people, and an ending. I, I want to know Something is being done by it. I want misery loves company, so I don't want to go through it alone. And I want to know that it's eventually going to be over. And it's interesting, in this passage, we have all three of those things laid out for us. Purpose. Well, God uses physical suffering for spiritual purposes. You know what? Locusts are here. Why? To make you ready for the second coming. The locusts are here so that you're ready for when Jesus comes back. You know what? The suffering that you're going through now, it's for a purpose. The Lord's doing something spiritual in your life. Don't run from it. Embrace it. Don't run from the pain. Fight through it. Don't flee the difficulty. Resolve it. It's for a purpose. Well, okay, but I don't want to go through it alone. Right? Misery loves company, and there is truth in that. And not always in a bad way. Well, interestingly, in this section where Joel begins to turn the kind of turning point to what to do with suffering, what is it about? It's all about corporate things. Your suffering is located within two corporate entities. It's within the corporate nature of the body of Christ and within the corporate nature of creation. So every time you suffer, you're suffering. Guess what all of creation is? Even the cows. They groan. But you're with the people of God. And your individual suffering is never ultimately individual. Right? You all know I've been fighting a head cold forever, it feels like. And it would be kind of silly for me to say, you know, it's, I feel great, but it's only my throat that's the problem. Now, my throat's hurting independently of everything else. Everything else is, well, I guess, actually, let's say my throat and my lungs. Everything else is fine. Y'all would look at me and go, you're crazy. It means you're sick, friend. And the whole body is not well when your throat's not well. Or the whole body's not well when your lungs aren't well. It's, you know, part ultimately exists independently. And then verse 16 actually gives us the idea, again, 15, I mean, that it does have an ending in sight. The day of the Lord. The day of recompense. The day of conclusions. On that second coming where time ends the way that we know it, and the world is made new again, and everything changes. Your suffering has a point. So it takes us back to that opening question that you have to ask with education. How much of teaching, how much of the way we do school is actually important with the way that we do it? Is it important to learn to write papers? 
Is it okay to learn geometry on the internet? Is it okay to be able to use a dictionary on the internet when you learn your foreign languages? What is flexible and what is not? And it's interesting when we ask that question about creation, we see that actually suffering is a part of the tool set that God uses to perfect his people. And you go back to that question, how much of this is kind of just the real deal? How much of this is necessary? How much of this is important? Well, when it comes to suffering, you have to say, well, yeah. I mean, as much as I don't like it, as much as I don't want to go through it, you can't get away from it. Because when you get away from suffering, you get away from the purpose that God has designed it for. You get away from the results. You get away from the end. You get away from the value and the benefit. You get away from all of what he is intending to accomplish. So may it be as we go from this place as God's people redeemed by Christ, forgiven in him through his work, as we enter into our suffering, may we remember we belong to a body. We belong to God's creation as redeemed folks. Our suffering is not alone. It's done for a purpose. And it will come to an end. And respond correctly as we face difficulty in the future. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the forgiveness that we find in Jesus. We thank you that our difficulty is not wasted and neither was his. He went to the cross and it wasn't for no reason. It wasn't futility that he went through the greatest of human suffering and neither is ours. And our suffering, our difficulty, our trials are a continuation and a completion of the suffering of our King. Forgive us for His sake. Strengthen us in His work. Fill us with Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.